Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. We turn today to a close-up of the personality character of the prophet Joseph Smith. May I begin with a comment of the late Sidney B. Sperry, perhaps our most knowledgeable Hebraist, that is, expert in Hebrew, who studied years ago with some of the world's renowned scholars at the University of Chicago and then came to Brigham Young University and remained here for his entire career. He told me that early in his life he had aspired to know more about the scriptures than any man living. One reason he studied ancient languages was to gain the advantage of reading in the earlier source materials. Some of his colleagues spoke of him as the accomplished SBS, his initials, because of his scholarly achievement. But he also told me, and this is the point, that he became thoroughly discouraged in his ideal, primarily because he became aware that no man in this generation could possibly know as much about the scriptures as did the prophet Joseph Smith. He said to me once, I believe I will not be accounted worthy to black his boots in the life to come. And he was a very worthy man. I begin with that because there is a feeling that constantly recurs in the study of the life of Joseph Smith. It is that you never quite get to the bottom. There is always more. You can be so impressed and overcome with glimpses that you say, nothing I could learn of him would be surprising. And then you become surprised. There is always more. It takes deep to comprehend deep. And I often wonder if any of us have the depth to fully comprehend this man. But I want to focus today not so much on his prophetic character and gifts as simply on the observed characteristics of those who surrounded him. Joseph Smith, the man. Look for a moment at his appearance. We know from the record that he was in his prime a little over six feet two in height. We know that he weighed over 200 pounds and that one of his advantages all through life was an extremely vigorous, dynamic, physical constitution. Had he not had that, he might not have survived the first major crisis of his life, which was, you recall, when he had a bone infection, a requirement in most instances of amputation. The doctor, under the pleading of Mother Smith, finally consented to perform surgery. 
but without anesthetic. If you can imagine having a section of your bone cut out and removed while you are fully conscious, you will understand what he bore. Dr. Werthlin in our generation has shown that this one physician who was from the Dartmouth Medical College in New Hampshire was the only man in the United States who understood how to perform that operation and who had the compassion and the skill to do so. That's only one glimpse of a hardy, enduring physical constitution. Even at that, he bore all he could bear and was prematurely old at age 38. We know further that the death mask applied by George Cannon, a convert from England, to the faces both of Joseph and Hiram after the Carthage assassination gives us exact lineaments of his forehead, his hairline, which was in 1844 receding some, partly as a result of poisoning. And we know that his nose was, as the statues on Temple Square depict, unusually large. And yet, it is the comment of those both visiting from the East and of his own convert friends that he was a magnificent man. The word handsome recurs, and there is some reference to the color and abundance, at least in the earlier years, of his hair. It was an auburn cast. Something about the transparency of his countenance, for he was beardless. He did shave, but he did not have a heavy or thick beard. And a good deal about the shape of his body, that, as one writer puts it, there was no breakage about it, meaning that he had a strong and robust pair of shoulders and then tapered down, and there weren't uh, ins and outs at any point. He had become a little portly in the late years in Nauvoo. If you read all of the witnesses, there are a few manly sports that he didn't have a try at, and there were many in which he excelled. For example, he wrestled and wrestled effectively. He jumped at the mark, which is a situation where you simply drew on the ground a mark, then jumped and marked where you landed, and then challenged someone else to match or exceed. He pulled up stakes two men facing each other, placing feet against feet, and then pulling. The stronger is the one who remains on the ground. The other comes up. There's a, another version of that where you hold face-to-face -face a pole, something like a broomstick, and then pull down. The stronger of the two holds and his hands don't slip. The weaker's hands slip. He also, with the boys, played baseball and variations on quoits, he was known to create games with prizes, including booby prizes. On other occasions when he did that, he would say, you must excuse me, but when I'm with the boys, I make all the fun I can. So much for the athletic side. Now we turn for a moment to his mind. It was a remarkable mind. Mother Smith records that he was the least inclined of all her family to books in his early years. And yet, 
as he matured and as the weight of his calling came upon him, he became an assiduous, hard reading student, poring over and over the scriptures. And as you well know, being appointed to go over them line by line and make inspired changes. But in addition to that, he came to aspire to the ancient languages. He set up a school in Hebrew, as you know, with Joshua Sitches in Kirtland, and aspired to teach these gentlemen, as well as to learn himself, when few of them had even mastered English in its rudiments. It is the verdict of the minutes that the two outstanding students in that school were Joseph Smith and Orson Pratt in that order. The worst, as you might have guessed, was Heber C. Kimball. The prophet became so impatient one day with Heber. He said, Heber, you learn that Hebrew vowel or I'll whip you. And Heber said, go ahead and whip. <laughs> we can break intellectual gifts into many categories. For convenience, let me try four. There is, first of all, part of our faculty we call imagination. The ability to picture concrete, pictorially and vividly, reality and the possibilities and variations. Joseph Smith had a vivid ability to picture and an emotional response. Some would say a dramatic propensity. And yet, he counseled that we should avoid, as he put it, a fancy and flowery and heated imagination. He had the gift, but he did not abuse it. And then there is the ability to conceptualize. That is to say, to understand principle, information, truth, and then, which isn't quite the same, to express it accurately, clearly, and if need be, briefly. Joseph Smith, whatever his early tendencies and however he may or may not have shown up in school, had a brilliant conceptual ability, both to see and understand, go to the heart of an issue, and then to express it so that others would hear and understand. Related to that was the charge, in effect, that he wrote down while he was for many months in isolation in Liberty. He wrote a letter, you recall, parts of which belong in our Doctrine and Covenants, but part that is not included is equally profound. He says, the things of God are of deep import, and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heaven and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss. Thou must commune with God. 
That remarkable passage is in the context of his saying that too often, even in our most important council meetings, classes, and gatherings, we had been too light-minded, too careless, too trivial, and too often unconcentrated in our direction. The third faculty, if it's an appropriate way to call it, is memory. The ability to retain what one learns and summon it for further use, implication or application at will. The evidence that he had to learn by repetition, just as we do, is initially in the fact that Moroni comes and repeats how many times the exact message, including the quotation of scriptures, which the prophet heard often enough and clearly enough to recognize were slightly different than in the King James Version of the Bible. At least four times he has to hear the message. Many might suppose that one visit from such a heavenly visitor would be sufficient for us to remember everything. On the contrary, the difficulty would be immense of being able to concentrate. Sometimes there is an initial expression of fear, the scriptures record. Withdrawal, the difficulty of getting oneself off one's hands long enough to listen. He listened, he remembered. The evidence of his remarkable memory is at the other end of his life when he sits down with William Clayton, his brother Hiram, one or two others, and dictates the revelation we now call section 132. It is a long revelation. The verses in it are long. And some of them sound as they describe the conditions of the everlasting covenant. Like an attorney had spent weeks carving out every possible synonym and nuance so that no loophole would remain. One example. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, associations, performances, or expectations. That's the subject of the sentence. Then there's a verb and then a very long predicate. Uh, just to have written that after patient winnowing of the dictionary would be an achievement. He dictated it straight. And according to one witness, without a change. Now that's amazing enough. But then someone suggested that a copy be made prior to Hiram doing what he had there expressed the wish to do. He wanted to take a copy of it himself. No, said the prophet, no copy is necessary. I can sit down and redictate it anytime. Now that is staggering. He had the essential, I take it, the essential core of that revelation so clearly in mind, he had full confidence he could restate it. He may have meant that he could have dictated exactly the same way. If so, then he was indeed beyond all mortal ability. But I think he meant only that the content was clear to him and that it would not be lost if the written version were lost. That is a remarkable memory. Then finally, one can raise questions 
about anyone's intellectual capacity in terms of the ability to be simplicity-minded. That's a gift. I didn't say simple-minded. Simplicity-minded. Able to reduce elaborate ideas to a core center or essence. But at the same time, it is a gift to be able to see what ordinaries do not. That is, to recognize implications, nuances, extensions of ideas that go beyond ordinary perception. Here again, Joseph Smith was an original. For on the one hand, he went in administrative and decision-making enterprises quickly to the heart with ingenuity and skill. But at the other end, if required and asked to elaborate on a given doctrine or teaching, he could do so and stretch the minds of all present. Just a generalization about the overall profundity of the written corpus of Joseph Smith. Author Henry King has said that in his judgment, the statement the prophet made for the Pearl of Great Price, the statement about his history, including his account of the first vision and the visits of Moroni, is among the sublimest prose in world literature. Now, Author Henry King is a renowned English professor and a convert. He has also said that one may contrast it favorably with the more ornate, but in many respects more shallow writing of Oliver Cowdery. You remember in smaller print at the end of the Joseph Smith section of the Pearl of Great Price, we have printed Oliver Cowdery's description of what it felt like to be under the prophet's voice in the translation process. You compare the two prose styles. In every way, Arthur Henry King observes, Joseph's is superior. We need not apologize at all for the language or structure or form of the Book of Mormon. It is among the great books of the world. It is to be placed side by side with those books which are called canonical. And there is a transparency, a brilliance, a white light about its most spiritual elements that I do not find anywhere else. It is a masterwork, and Joseph Smith did not and could not have produced it. For years and years, it's been said anybody who had lived in western New York or anybody who took the time could grind out such imitation scripture himself. Nibley, becoming a little impatient with that sort of nonsense, had a class once here made up of Middle East students, all of them from either the Palestine area or farther east. He mentioned that at the opening of his class and said, I'm making a term paper assignment. I would like each of you to write 502 page, uh, 22 pages by the end of the semester, which has the following characteristics. And then he outlined what the Book of Mormon has and is. So far, he has not received the assignment back. No man and no combination of men could have written that book except under divine inspiration. And now I would add one other point from my own perspective. 
Section 93. I leave out any others, though they, too, have their place. Just select that one. Section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants is in my considered judgment, and I've read a little in the philosophers of the world, superior in content to Plato's Timaeus. If Plato was the greatest philosopher of the Western world, and that has been said often through many generations, by Alfred North Whitehead most recently, who said that Plato was the only philosopher of the Western world, everything since has been footnotes. If that is true, I'm not sure it is, but if it is, I say to you, Joseph Smith, then, was a profounder man than Plato. But he had the added advantage of the Holy Ghost. So much then for a few comments on his mind. Now let's turn to his temperament, to his emotional makeup, to his dispositions. He begins his own account of his life by saying he had a playful and cheerful temperament, or the exact language, native cheery temperament. Thank the Lord he did. It stood him in good stead. Many who joined the church, some from foreign lands and some from the United States, many out of, of course, New England, with its conservative and sometimes rigid puritanical traditions, others from movements such as the Quaker and Baptist movements, many who compared on early encounters Joseph Smith with his brother Hiram, remarked that Hiram seemed to them more in the image of what they thought a prophet should look like and behave like. He was, they meant to say, more sedate, sober, serious. In contrast to which the prophet, for all of his sobriety under proper circumstance, was a hail fellow well met, easily inclined to laughter, uh, social, animated, the life of the party, and colorful in his use of language. That was serious enough for some that they left the church. There was a woman who visited the prophet in the early New York period. He was upstairs with Oliver for a time translating. Serious and tedious work. And then he came downstairs and began to roll on the floor and frolic with his children. This woman was so indignant and incensed, she left the church. Not only did he have that temperament, but he found it difficult to abide, especially where the persons came out of false traditions. He found it difficult to abide opposite attitudes. Two instances. There were ministers who came intending to tie him up, as they had bragged, over scriptural analysis. And they kept trying to push him in a corner, and each time he not only had answers, but questions for them that they couldn't handle. And finally, they uh, became convinced that it would be better if they left. And as they went to the door, the prophet preceded them, went out, made a mark on the ground, and jumped and said, Now, gentlemen, you haven't bested me at the scriptures. See if you can best me at that. And they went away much incensed. There was a man who came who had developed a certain falsetto. We in our generation are not familiar with it, but 
in preaching without public address systems, some Methodists, for example, in the role of exhorter, would pitch their voice high and shout so loud it could be heard a mile. Sometimes they prayed that way. And one man with exactly that tone came and said with a kind of supercilious reverence, Do I have the privilege of flashing my optics on a prophet of God? And the prophet replied, Maybe you do. Would you like to wrestle? He went away upset. When a man of that same stripe worked with the prophet in the fields, and it was a little upsetting to see a man, a prophet, out cutting wood and perspiring, uh, came in for lunch, the prophet called him to pray, and he said about such a prayer, shouting. The prophet didn't interrupt him, but when he was through, he said simply, Brother, don't ever let me hear you pray that way again. You don't have to bray like a jackass to be heard of the Lord. He went away upset. Many of the things I do, he said occasionally, I do to break down superstition and tradition. He also said on occasion, although I do wrong, I do not the wrongs I am charged with. So he had a sense of humor. He occasionally joshed even the brethren in serious circumstance. There was, for example, today that a newspaper article came out announcing that a man had sold his wife and the price was a bull-eye watch. A recent convert came up the street from the maid of Iowa. The prophet greeted him on a horse and said, you're not the man that sold your wife for a bull-eye watch, are you? He didn't know quite how to take that, but explained he was not. On another occasion, serious intent, but humorous overtones, the prophet dressed up in the worst clothes he could find, got on a horse, and rode down to the Maid of Iowa just as it was emitting a whole load of converts from England. The first man that came up the row, he stopped. Why are you here, he inquired. I have joined the Mormon Church. What do you know about Joseph Smith? I know. He is a prophet of God. What if I told you I am Joseph Smith? If you are Joseph Smith, then I know you are a prophet of God. The prophet smiled, struck hands, and said, I am the prophet, but I've dressed up in these rough clothes just so you'll understand that if you expect somebody other than a human you might as well get right back on that boat and go back to England. He spent his life, it seems to me, half the time trying to convince the slow and sludgy people who had little faith that God was indeed with him and with them, and the other half alerting them that a prophet is only a prophet when he is a prophet, which means when he is inspired of God. The rest of the time he's a mere mortal, has opinions, makes mistakes, and in the general uh, way of speaking, has to put his pants on one leg at a time like everyone else. It was difficult to strike that balance. Some thought he was too human. Some thought he was too prophetic. Both were wrong. We should mention one other story. George A. Smith was a cousin of the prophet Joseph Smith and was, in girth at least, a larger man. He weighed nearly 300 pounds. They were discussing 
William W. Phelps as an editor, and Phelps had a gift as well as a curse for using language in a most abrasive way. He managed in his editorials to offend almost everyone. George A. Smith responded that he thought Phelps had a certain literary zeal and that uh, as far as he was concerned, he would make him editor of his paper if only he had the right to read it. And the prophet laughed at that and said, George A., you have it just about right. And then he hugged him and said, George A., I love your soul. And then this bit of serious counsel. Never get discouraged. If I were in the deepest coal pit of Nova Scotia and had the Rocky Mountains piled on top of me, I would not be discouraged and I would come out on top. George A. was moved almost to tears and said, I hope my love will be shown to you by my actions, Joseph. There is next the question of whether in all of his attitudes the prophet demonstrated appropriate humility and the very thing he taught in word, namely compassion and forbearance and forgiveness. He himself once said, I have a subtle devil to deal with and I can only curb him by being humble. No braggadocio, no threats, no vainglorying. You do not have power over the adversary and his hosts except through the power of Christ. And you do not have such power save you are humble and receptive. What is humility? Well, there are a thousand definitions, but it means, at least I take it, acknowledging one's dependence. Acknowledging when and where one is not self-sufficient. And Joseph, according to those who knew him best, was in that sense humble. Now, we're not here talking about boldness. He had that. It's not the opposite of humility. We're not talking about willingness to endure in strength. He had that. And that is not the opposite of humility. We are saying that Joseph did not manifest the debilitating pride that destroys humility. That is the witness of several. May I quote to Eliza R. Snow, who had heard of the prophet and some very ugly things, happened to be at home on a given day when the prophet called, chatted with her family. She was in another room, but the door was half ajar, and through the crack in that door, as the prophet sat down by the fire and began to warm his hands, she had a direct, straight view of his face. Now, he was, of course, unaware of being watched. His face was in repose. In less than a minute, Eliza R. Snow became convinced that this was an honest man. And as she later joined the church and was often in his home, a kind of babysitter and help for a time in Kirtland, she records in poetry that she first admired him in his public ministry, saw him as a prophet, but that not until she saw him in his own home, on his own knees, in relationship to his children, 
did her whole heart go out to him in admiration. She was, he said, as humble as a little child. Was the prophet an emotional man? In all the worthy senses of that word, the answer is yes. Easily the tears sprang to his eyes. And in varied situations, there is, for example, the testimony of Parley P. Pratt that as he got off the, the boat, having been on a long mission, and the prophet came down to greet him, the prophet hugged him and just wept. And finally, when Parley could extricate himself, he said, Joseph, if you feel that bad about it, I'll go back. He wept too at goodbyes. The tears were flowing fast the day he said goodbye to his family before he went to Richmond jail. And the Lord himself acknowledges all that when he says in a revelation, speaking of Joseph, his tears I have seen and his prayers I have heard. And I will cause that he shall mourn for Zion no more. He sometimes characterized himself as a rough stone that rolling down a mountain comes in contact with various things until it becomes smooth. He also occasionally called himself a lone tree. He had learned in Vermont that those maples that were alone had to develop early deep roots. And if not, then came the blast that took them down. He felt, for all of his social sense, deeply lonely, and said, Wilfred Woodruff records once, Would to God that I could unbosom my feelings once to my friends, but I never expect to in this life. You do not know me, he said in the King Follett discourse, you do not know my heart. And then this remarkable phrase, I do not blame any man for not believing my history. If I had not experienced what I have, I could not have believed it myself. In that loneliness, he had to keep to his own bosom, those are his words, certain deep understandings which the Lord had vouchsafed to him with the command that he not share. The reason he once said we do not have more of the secrets of the Lord revealed to us is that we reveal them. We tell them to everyone, even our enemies. And then he added, I can keep a secret until doomsday. And so he did. As an emotional and loving man, what kind of a home life did the prophet have? Under the buffetings that relentlessly began with the prophet's announcement of his vision, it is miraculous that he had as much time at home as he did. Poor Emma had by him 11 children. How many of them died at birth? Five, including a pair of twins. And in the ache of her bosom, she moved the prophet to go and bring home a pair of twins whose mother had died in that same week. And Emma raised those children. Of those two, one 
died under the exposure of the night the prophet was mobbed, you remember, beaten, tarred, and left. And the other, the girl, lived to maturity but never responded to the message of the gospel. Only in one instance did Emma bear a child in a home she could call her own. And that was David Hiram, born after the prophet's death. And as for Emma in general, may I at this point comment that the time has fully come for us to reach out the olive branch. There have been sayings at both ends of the spectrum, Utah and the reorganization, conflict and difficulty over Emma. But the certainty of the record is this simple. Joseph Smith loved her with his whole soul. And the corollary, Emma loved him with her whole soul. And it is impossible to demean the wife of the prophet without sooner or later demeaning him. She was, except for the difficulties that came with plural marriage, not only a remarkable woman, she was just a noble and glorious supporter of all the prophet did, as Mother Smith says in her own personal tribute. And I believe that regardless of our quick tendency to judge this or that in her subsequent life, knowing what she went through, we ought to be kindly and tender in what we say of her. Well, the home life of the prophet included with her prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and night. It included her leading the family, and the family was always larger than his own blood relatives. Visitors from hither and yon, some came for a week, and some, like John Bernheisel, for three years. She led singing, commanded as the elect lady to pull together the songs, which many of them still are in our hymnal. The prophet Joseph, according to Jesse W. Crosby, helped Emma in all of the domestic chores, in the kitchen, in the laundry, and in the hard work of inning and outing with the wood and the garbage. He was criticized more than once for that, some men thinking that was beneath his dignity. With kindly reproof, the prophet said in so many words, go and do thou likewise, brother. It's also recorded that he was neat, that is, that his axe was always carefully sharpened and properly placed after he'd used it, that his wood was always carefully stacked, that his yard was carefully kept. And to his death, he was a farmer who earned much of what he was able to eat by plowing, planting, weeding, and harvesting. We have a glimpse of his sleep from Lauren Farr, who observed even in the Missouri persecution days that under pressure even, Joseph could, and of course he was always under the kind of pressure that leads to the worst fatigue, he could sit down at the base of a tree and almost instantly fall into slumber, but almost as instantly snap back to full alert activity. I believe that has something to do with a clear conscience and the assurance that God is with you. 
He avoided, but could not wholly avoid, some of the tedious trivia of life. He did not like the clerical functions. He did not like the commandment which came on the very day the church was organized, that a record must be kept day by day, and that in it all of the important events should be recorded. But he did it. He had helpful scribes. He was patient with them and they with him. The prophet turned to his secretary, Howard Corey, and said, you know, if you were a little heavier, I could have some fun with you. And Corey said, well, don't let that bother you, Joseph. And instantly the prophet reached and grappled him and twisted him over and broke his leg. <laughs> he carried him home, all compassion, put him in bed, called his wife, and then Brother Corey said, Joseph, when Jacob wrestled with an angel, he received a blessing. I would like a blessing. Joseph gave him a blessing, and he was healed remarkably. But now back to Robert B. Thompson. Robert said, Joseph, you have been so faithful and relentless in this work, you need to relax. Go out. Have a spree. Relax. But Thompson was a sober man. He said, I can't do it. Joseph said, you must do it. If you don't do it, you will die. One of the sorrows of Joseph's life is that Robert B. Thompson had a premature death. and He had to speak at his funeral. He learned to relax and occasionally again chided for it, commented that any man who has a bow and has it constantly strung tight will soon lose the spring in his bow. The bow must be unstrung. When somebody saw him with his head down once and he was pensive and deep in thought and said, come on, Joseph, hold your head up like a man, the prophet's response was, look at those heads of grain. And the man looked out at some ripe field of wheat and saw that the heaviest ones, the ones full of grain, really bent down. The prophet was implying there's some heavy grist in my mind, brother. But he could unleash and thank the Lord for that. Two other glimpses of his home life. He was inclined, whenever he was mistreated, to get even by offering the hospitality of his home. That meant Emma and her talents in cooking. It's unbelievable how often he did it and with what little warning. And he occasionally said, if you cannot accept our religion, accept our hospitality. There were times when the cupboard was bare, and you've all heard the story of the night they had nothing to eat but a little bit of cornmeal. They made out of it a Johnny cake, as it was called, and uh, the prophet offered the blessing as follows. O oh Lord, we thank thee for this Johnny cake and ask thee to send us something better. Before the meal was over, there was a knock at the door, and there stood a man with a ham and a turkey. The prophet jumped to his feet and said, You see, Emma, my prayer was answered. He shared and shared until he was utterly impoverished. Now, a few comparisons. We have the testimony of the governor of California who had known Joseph in the Missouri period that he found him a man of great leadership gifts, a man who instinctively commanded admiration and response. Do not forget that uh, Stephen A. Douglas, whose 
dubbed title, The Little Giant, was, one source claims, applied to him by Joseph Smith. The same Stephen Douglas that debated Lincoln and the same Stephen Douglas that did aspire, as the prophets predicted he would, to the presidency of the United States, had many admiring things to say of Joseph during the Illinois stage. Alexander Donovan, the one who refused to shoot the brothers Smith in the square at noon and said, anyone who does so, I will bring before a tribunal, so help me God. Alexander Donovan said that Mormon men generally were a cut above others he knew in that period. J.W. Woods, the prophet's last attorney, with him the afternoon of June 27, 1844, never, of course, a Latter-day Saint, observes that you could see the strength of Joseph Smith in his manner and dignity. But he added, you could see by his face alone that he was not a bad man. Daniel H. Wells, who heard him twice in Nauvoo, Squire Wells it was, a kind of 19th century attorney, heard him speak of the principle that every son and daughter of Adam, sooner or later, whether in this life or the next, will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in its purity and in its fullness and have adequate option to choose it, and that those who choose it will have absolute right to all the blessings that come only in this life. How? By proxy. And this man, trained in law and in justice, said, I don't know what else can be said about that man. His mind is the most just I have ever encountered. We have from Brigham Young a comment on how Joseph was different than Hiram. And beyond the obvious and platitudinous comments is this one, that Joseph, more than his brother, was susceptible to the continuing impressions and revelations of God. That is, he did not become so rigidly bound to what had been given that he was unsusceptible to what yet had to be given. That is a tendency. One can harden claiming integrity on the past tradition and can thus become immune to living revelation. Joseph, says Brigham, more than his brother had that susceptibility. And he tended to judge men with that same openness. That is, all cases are not identical. Each individual has his own special differences and must be brought into harmony with the Lord in his own way. Again, showing a mind not only open, but receptive, and not only receptive, but obedient, even when that went counter to former assumptions and traditions. He was, in that sense, the revelator of our dispensation. Well, to summarize, we have a man who physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, was a living human multitude. He was many men, as it were, in one. 
Many of his gifts were balanced with others. And all in all, he was a superb instrument with whom the Lord could work in the dispensation of the fullness of times. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.